Hey, it's Chaz Mostert here, and yes, I'm inside your speaker. I'm in here because I have a special message for you from Clayton in Melbourne. If you're a club, state, or national racer on the circuit or on the dirt in Speedway or rallying, you can now tap into the know-how of Walkinshaw Racing Services, and you don't need a supercar to get in the door. The same expertise that's won multiple Bathurst 1000s and V8 Supercar Championships is now available for you to call upon. From bonnet to bumper, WRS can help you with engines, design, paint, machining, fabrication, and so much more for all sorts of makes, models, and categories. Have a chat with Walkinshaw Racing Services and tell them what matters to you. Call now on 1300 WRacing or email services at walkinshawracing.com.au. A Motorsport Podcast Network production. Hello and welcome to the Castrol Motorsport News Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Van Leeuwen, and here's what's making news this week. Daniel Ricciardo will not drive for McLaren in Formula 1 next season. The worst-kept secret is now official with the Aussie set to leave the famous squad despite having another year left on his original contract. Not yet official, but widely expected is that he will be replaced by countryman Oscar Piastri. We'll have more on that later in the pod. Lee Holdsworth has announced his retirement from full-time supercars racing. He will hang up his helmet as a full-timer at the end of the current season. Wakeful Park will close its doors this week. In sad news for Aussie Motorsport, the circuit will cease operating for the foreseeable future due to new noise restrictions that limit it to four on-track days per month. The date for the 2023 Supercars opener has been approved by the Newcastle City Council. The council has given the thumbs up to the March 10-12 to 12 date for the Newcastle 500. However, the green light from Heritage New South Wales is still required to ensure the event goes ahead. Supercars is set to tighten its wildcard rules next year and limit teams to one single driver round and a wildcard for the Bathurst 1000. That will prevent the multi-round wildcard programs that we saw this year from Secret Racing, Image Racing and Walkinshaw Andretti United from happening again. Thomas Randall and Brock Feeney have had a sneak peek of Pukekohe. The rookie pair will race at the enchanting historic circuit for the first time at the Auckland Super Sprint in a couple of weeks and made a flying visit to New Zealand last week to cut a few laps in a Toyota 86. Jack Miller will return to the Australian Superbikes for the season finale at the Bend Motorsport Park later this year. He'll be riding a Ducati run by his own Thriller Racing team. And Lewis Bates took his first Australian Rally Championship round victory in Gippsland over the weekend. He and co-driver Anthony McLaughlin broke Bates' brother Harry's ARC winning streak after the elder Bates was taken out by a failed prop shaft. Troy Dale was second, while third-generation hopeful Max McRae scored a career-first ARC podium in third. Joining me this week to discuss all that and more is a teammate who some say is an idiot who can only drive and start in first. I, of course, disagree. Stefan Bartholomew. Stefan, how are you this week? G'day, Andrew. Very well. I uh, do love it when you take one from the Fernando Alonso book of sledges, the yep. big book of sledges, that is. That was <laughs> such a such an amazing line from him straight after the contact with, with Lewis Hamilton. As soon as that massive block of radio text popped up on the screen, it was pretty clear we're in for a treat. Oh, for sure, yep. I think there was plenty of uh, pause and rewinding going on on Foxtel boxes around the, uh, around the country and sky boxes around the world to really take in the... Uh, the, the, the immense sledge there. He is a master at it, Fernando. No doubt about that. Did, did you see that um, he tried to sort of walk it back afterwards in, in the media pen, like saying it was just a heat-of-the-moment reaction? Uh, I, I don't know what it came across like to you, but it felt like he thought about those words before that I know. moment. <laughs> I know. There's no, and it's like, the, it's like the classic criticism, like this guy can't actually race. Um, no, it was... 
it seemed a little more well thought out um, than that, <laughs> and particularly and the and the way that it kind of played out afterwards of like of Lewis straight away saying, "Oh yeah, I totally got that wrong," you know, like that's my bad. I'm really sorry, and then go, "Hang on a minute," he said, "What?" Uh, and it's kind <laughs> of uh, <laughs> it's kind of taken on a a life of its own from there. It's all. Very, very amusing. Great stuff. Lewis and did have a, uh, a long time to think about it on his walk back, though. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yep. No, it is a long. I've walked around that track before. We've walked around that track before, mm. Stefan. We were there in 2016 for the uh, for the 24 hours. That was uh, we've done a few done a few miles on the old Foot Falcon around Spa. Don't worry about that. Um, let's get straight into the big news that emerged this morning. Lee Holdsworth will retire as a full time supercars driver at the end of this season, and will instead focus on his commercial real estate job with CBRE and a Bathurst 1000 drive. Um, this is a bit of a shock, to be honest, because as recently as Sandown, the talk was that you know he was the runaway favourite to land the seat being vacated by Tim Slade at Blanchard Racing Team. Uh, in his retirement statement, Holdsworth did reference there being opportunities to continue in a full-time capacity, but you know he wanted to call time on, his, on this chapter of his career, start this new career, um, which he was meant to start this year before the opportunity with the Groves came up, and you know spend more time with his family, all that sort of stuff that guys want to do when they do decide to hang up the helmet as a full-timer. Um, I guess this has given him the opportunity to go out on his own terms um, after he was forced out when Tickford lost one of its wrecks at the end of the, the 2020 season. But still, this 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 did come as a surprise to me. Stefan, are you surprised by this news as well? Yeah, I mean, like a couple of months ago, I don't think anyone would have been surprised because it was always set up as this sort of retirement year that he didn't get to have because of how the rug was pulled out from under him at Tickford at the end of 2020. And then Groves obviously ended up in this situation where they wanted to put Matt Payne in the car this year, but couldn't because he didn't have a super license. So this was a perfect fit sort of for both parties that Groves got this stopgap for one year and and Lee could go and do a final sort of full-time season. But then with some of the results that Lee was getting and then the Tim Slade situation with BRT, Obviously, there was there was talk going on there, and as you say, it looked like Lee was going to continue for another season over there. So, yeah, he, he did say in that statement that he had opportunities to continue, and you know, good on him for for going out on his own terms. Like it is a big commitment being a full time driver, and he'd started to gear his life around life beyond that in terms of that real estate job, which which he had committed to doing full time this year, and has now been sort of fitting it part time around his around his racing and and that family element too, which was a big part of his statement. So it, I thought it was a really classy statement, the, the words that were put together and put out from Lee, and it's exactly what you'd expect from him really. And it's a shame to see him him stop because he's such a well, well-liked person in the paddock. Oh, absolutely. No, he's, um, he's yeah, very well-liked. One of the nicest blokes in motor racing, no doubt about that. Look, he's had an amazing career. He just chalked up 500 races. The funny thing is, you know, like – just to back over what you talked about with the with the Groves thing, I mean, it is for a lot of this year we did expect this to be his swan song year. So it's kind of weird that we are now kind of sitting here talking about how shocked we are that he's pulled the pin because that was how it was always meant to go until this whole BRT mm. thing came along. But but what 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 is also kind of interesting is just how well getting axed from Tickford at the end of 2020 has actually gone for him, funnily enough. You know, he kind of ended up in that what became a five-into-three scenario with Thomas Randall and then the wreck leaving the, 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 the 23 red wreck being being shifted over to BJR and it kind of – he just sort of got left without a seat when the music stopped and it was like, oh, 
poor Lee, but then, you know, he goes to, to Walkinshaws, he wins the Bathurst 1000, he gets this opportunity to come back with Groves, has, you know, what's been a completely solid professional season, again, exactly what you'd expect from Lee Holdsworth, and then gets to actually retire on his own terms, do it properly. He's already has his life geared up, heading towards the next phase. Like things have all actually fallen into place quite nicely for him from what was kind of a crappy situation when when he missed out at Tickford for, for 2021. Yeah, and I think like there, there wasn't a single person in supercars that wasn't really happy for him when he won Bathurst last year. Yeah. Like if, if you look at a lot of his career, to be honest, it's kind of been, there's been a few right place, wrong time sort of moves. Like obviously he served that apprenticeship at GRM, which really cemented him in the sport for six years from 2006. And you look back at that and there were some immense drives there, you know, winning in the wet at Oran Park in 2007 and, and his, some of his performances at Sydney Olympic Park, getting a win there in 2010. Like he really was a standout there. So he was really hot property by 2011, which is when he had that chance to go to FPR in the in the Bottolo car and he ended up choosing Stones, which a year later turned into Erebus. So that was the move that really didn't work out well for him. And actually, from memory, it didn't work out too well for you either back in your motorsport news days. Uh, yes, no, no. Thank you for bringing that up, Stefan. Um, this is one of Stefan's favourite topics in the whole world was when... Uh, I had a very nice cover story on Motorsport E-News that committed Holdsworth to going to Tickford to take the bottle of drive, which he was going to do. He'd been there, he'd done a seat fitting, and things very quickly changed in the days that followed, and he was off to SBR. And Stefan loves reminding me about it. And I'm pretty, have you actually got that cover of E-News framed on your office wall? Well, it's a shame it was electronic e-news. Otherwise, yeah, it, it could be in a frame. But, uh, yeah, obviously not really about you. It was about Lee. So, um, yeah, that sort of set him on that path there with Erebus. Like, he, he won a race in a Merc. Like, that's a very cool thing to have on his CV. But it was tough for him there. And then he was at Team 18 in its various forms. And he'd finally gotten back to a really good place there at Tickford with the Mustang in sort of late 2019 and then into 2020. And, unfortunately, that's... Um, yeah, that's, that's where it ended for him there. And, you know, at the end of the day, as you say, though, that put him on the path to, to that Bathurst win with Walkinshaws and uh, then the full-time season this year. And surely we'll, we'll see him back on the grid at Bathurst uh, in the future. He's, he's probably eyeing off another Peter Brock trophy. And, you know, he's proven he can win Bathurst, so he rockets straight up to number one on the on, on, on the draft list for, for Bathurst co-drivers um, for next year. So you would imagine he's going to end up in a fairly competitive seat somewhere and be in with a pretty good shout of um, of winning another Bathurst crown at some point before he properly hangs up the, the helmet and, and, and stops racing completely. Um, the question that, that this does create is what does BRT do now? I mean, Leroy really did seem like a lock there. It would have been a really good fit. Uh, I guess another name that was linked to BRT when it became clear Slady was on the move uh, was Zane Goddard. He does have a lot of Gen 3 experience. He's been doing a lot of the development driving um, there. Stefan, if you were Timmy Blanchard, where would you be looking now that, that Leroy is off the market? Yeah, it's it's the big question. And there's obviously a few candidates out there, including some young drivers pushing to, to get their chance. This, uh, this race team really, you know, it exists to promote Cool Drive. It's, it's run as an arm of their bigger auto parts business. And they're very big on their presentation. It's almost Penske-like in the way they present themselves. Yeah. So you'd think they'd be after someone that presents well, speaks well, does all that stuff out of the car. 
um, and ideally has a bit of a name as well. I mean, I think a lot of that was why Lee was going to be such a good fit there if, if he went there. So if you look at Zane Goddard, he isn't an established name, but he certainly ticks a lot of the boxes, not only in the car, but he's he's a well-spoken young young bloke. So, yeah, wh- whether it's him or, you know, you'd, you'd think someone like a Fabian Coulthard would be on the blower to them as well. But, uh, yeah, we'll see how this plays out. It will be quite interesting. But anyway, look, Lee is, is one of the great blokes in uh, in motor racing, so it's sad he won't be around as much. And uh, we congratulate him on a remarkable career. Uh, now, this Wakefield Park news, Stefan, is incredibly sad and a real blow for the Goulburn region, for motorsport in New South Wales, um, for the Benella Auto Club, which operates the venue. You know, I mean, it's just we whenever we have facilities like this closing closing the, its doors, it's it's bad for it's bad for the industry, really. There's no other way to put it. I guess it was an inevitable outcome, Stefan, when the track was limited um, to the four days a month or when it became clear that that limit really had to be adhered to. Um, but it's still very sad given the history of the venue and the contribution to motorsport it still makes, right? Yeah, for sure. Like, obviously, it doesn't have those top-tier events. It's never had a main game supercars round, but it's an important venue for the lower levels. And clearly something like this affects a lot of people and businesses in, in many different ways. Given how serious this is, I grabbed Lockie Mansell for a chat about it. Now, your listeners may know Lockie as the motor racing guy who won Beauty and the Geek, but uh, we know him as someone who has been an integral part of the BAC for many, many years, overseeing the club's PR and media management. Um, he's been on the front line of this battle to save Wakefield Park, so um, I wanted to have a chat with him about it, and here's what he had to say. Um, Lockie, this has been a somewhat confusing saga to follow. I mean, at times it can be hard to tell if the Benalla Auto Club and the Goulburn Mulwari Council are allies or enemies. Um, having been on the inside of this whole thing, you know, can you briefly sum up sort of how we got here? <laughs> you know, I'll try and keep it as brief as I can in AVL, but basically if you go back to 2020, Wakefield Park, through its owners, the Benalla Auto Club, submitted a development application to the Golden Mulwari Council to try and get the circuit upgraded, so get some new pit buildings built, upgrade the general facilities and just try and make it a bit nicer for everybody. And part of the development application was also to get some clear definition about the regulations regarding noise at the circuit and the number of days per year that the circuit would be able to hold events that are at particular noise levels. Uh, unfortunately, after what's been a, a very elongated process through the Golden Mulwari Council, the development application being approved with conditions attached to it regarding those, those noise days, uh, ultimately there was an appeal process which went to the Land and Environment Court and the Land and Environment Court have made a, a determination which basically stipulates that Wakefield Park is not allowed to operate for more than four events per month, and an event is classified as a day of operation. So even though you and I and everybody, we all know that in motorsport, an event generally goes for multiple days, that's not how the Land and Environment Court have defined it. They've said that an event is a day. So... Um, as you can no doubt understand, four events a month, four days of operation a month is not enough for the circuit to be able to operate in a manner that's financially feasible. Yeah. 
and uh, therefore, unfortunately, the very tough decision has been made for the circuit to cease operations altogether from the 1st of September. Yeah, because, I mean, the income, you know, for these venues comes from track usage, right? That's how they make money. Correct. So, obviously, you get race events on weekends, but during the week, there's lots of other track usage and opportunities for the circuit to generate revenue as well. So, whether that be test or ch- and tune days for owners of race cars to test their cars or it might be driver training or it might be car manufacturers booking out the circuit to do vehicle launches or corporate days to showcase new models of cars to their dealer network or it might be um, motoring or automotive media outlets that have booked out the circuit to do evaluation and comparison tests of cars as well. So I think one of the things is when you look at those events, particularly the events with road cars, they're not emitting a huge amount of noise. So that's uh, one of the things that's a little bit frustrating about how this has all played out. Just to backtrack to the way you explained what had actually happened, and that's definitely the best, clearest sort of explanation that, that I've, I've heard, if they hadn't have submitted that development application in the first place, would we maybe not be in this situation? Well, hard to say because there had been a, a small but vocal group of residents who had been complaining about noise at the venue and there'd been a a prevention notice that was put into place that was basically stipulating the number of days the circuit that could run and that was it was a compromise but it was a compromise that was still workable but the the land and environment court appeal and the subsequent decision as a result of the appeal that that's what's really created this drama because now that it's a decision that's been made at a judicial level by the Land and Environment Court. You can't overturn it. So it's really backed the track into a corner now. And even though it's not totally over and out yet, it's going to be a lot more difficult to find a resolution to this situation. Was it the BAC that uh, that led it to the to the LEC? I mean, is that is yeah. that how it got there? Yeah, it was. Yeah. Yep. Okay. It's um, yeah, <laughs> it's a crazy situation. I mean, there are a number of levels in which you know this does have devastating consequences. You know, we're talking about the local community in Goulburn and the economic benefit that the circuit brings to that area. We're talking about motor racing in New South Wales in general. You know, they're left with one permanent circuit now, which is Sydney Motorsport Park. Um, the Benella Auto Club and its employees, you know, they're, they're obviously going to be heavily affected as well. I mean, this is actually, I guess, because Wakefield hasn't been on the supercars calendar and in sort of modern times, it may not be at the forefront of everybody's, you know, your more general motor racing fans' mind, but this is a this is a big deal and a hammer blow, right? It's massive for the entire, not just the motorsport industry, but I think the wider automotive industry here in New South Wales. So you'll look at some of the customers of Wakefield Park, people who are doing driver training, you know, corporate groups that were doing events there. It's going to have massive ramifications, not to mention the golden economy, the number of people that travel from from Sydney or from Canberra or from other places in New South Wales or interstate to attend Goulburn because of Wakefield Park. So you think of all of the accommodation venues in Goulburn, all of the pubs, clubs, restaurants, places that people go to, to eat and look after themselves, all going to suffer as a result of what's happened. And I think in many respects, Andrew, it's a bit of a wake-up call for the wider automotive industry because 
Over the last couple of decades, a lot of the emphasis from state governments, not just in New South Wales, but around Australia, has been throwing funding into permanent street circuits for supercars. And yes, there's an economic benefit, and yes, there's a tourism benefit, but in street circuits, that only gets felt once a year. And in terms of the motorsport industry, it's only those national level categories that get to compete at those street races that get to benefit from that. Whereas with permanent circuits, it's the entire motorsport industry that benefits all year round and, and many other industries as well. And unfortunately, I think one of the things that's happened is the wider motorsport community hasn't done a good enough job of lobbying government at state level to make state politicians recognise the importance of permanent motorsport venues. And if there's a lesson for all of us to learn out of this, it's just how important it is to get those relationships happening with key government ministers and key politicians to make them recognise just how important this sport is. That's a very, very good point. Well, you mentioned before that it's a tough road back now. It's not quite over and out, but the road is pretty rocky to get back to where we can have the doors open and the circuit operating in a financially viable um, scenario. What is what is that path? What's the pathway to saving way forward? There's been talk of you know seeking special economic status. Um, it feels like maybe there is a bit of cooperation between you know the circuit and the council now about uh, keeping this place or saving this joint. What, what's the pathway from here? The pathway from here is what it's going to boil down to is. There will need to be, I believe, a legislative change at state government level because the decision has been made by the Land and Environment Court based on the current um, – it's to do with the zone that the Wakefield Park is in as a – I think mm-hmm. it's called an agricultural and primary production zone. Yep. There's going to need to be some sort of legislative change, whether it's um, – somehow changing the status of events that are held at Wakefield Park or changing the status of the zone in which Wakefield Park sits to to allow it to to operate again. I think that's what's going to be required. And like I said, it's, it's probably going to take some state government and ministerial intervention. And some great insight from Lockie there, and we thank him greatly for his time. Stefan, what really bothers me about this, and, I, you know, I think we flagged this before, but, like, if Wakefield Park in the middle of nowhere has run into these noise issues, look, I just wonder what hope do so many other circuits have long term? I mean, I drive out to Wanneroo Raceway fairly regularly. I see the housing estates creeping up on, on that place as well. Like it's it's there's going to be issues there at some point for sure. It's a worrying sign for our sport really. Yeah, no doubt. Urban sprawl is a massive issue for racetracks and it has been for some time. I mean, clearly it was the reason for losing those great venues like Amaru Park and Oran Park and someday it's going to claim Sandown as well. This Wakefield thing, as Lockie really went into, is a little bit of an unusual case in the sense that it was always meant to be limited use and over the years they started running well beyond what was intended. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so then that development application processed and that attempt at getting clarification on what they could do has really brought them unstuck. So, um, yeah, quite a bizarre scenario, really. Let's move on to this limit uh, to, well, this move to limit wildcards to a single sprint round and uh, Bathurst. It's it's quite an interesting, um, quite an interesting sort of idea i guess actually enforcing i think a a, a limit that was already in place Stefan, have you got a bit of a grasp on what's actually going on here 
Yeah, I think the short answer is they're trying to protect the Super 2 series. When you look at it, you know, this year, Zach Best, Jaden Ojeda and Jordan Boys all did two sprint round wildcards each. And Ojeda and Boys did that basically instead of doing Super 2. So for Boys, it was a clear choice. They thought he'd get more value out of putting his funding towards two wildcards and a Bathurst co-drive than spending it all on Super 2 again. Supercars wants to make sure Super 2 is full, so they're limiting the wildcards these guys can do. I just don't necessarily get it. I mean, I, I can fundamentally understand that Supercars wants to force people through the Super 2 pathway because it creates revenue that goes back to supercars. But wildcards are people spending money in the supercar system anyway. I mean, none of this stuff happens for free. So I, I just don't fully understand this. I mean, there's, there, there doesn't need to be this remarkable protection of Super 2 because escape from, from Super 2 is impossible through the super license system. You have to go to Super 2 if you want to race in supercars. It's You can't avoid that. So I don't get why we need this extra layer of protection um, for Super 2. And, and while we're on it, the Super license system is, as I've said before, broken because drivers shouldn't actually be forced through Super 2. I mean, I understand it fundamentally from a supercars perspective. They want money being spent there, but it, it shouldn't it, – They drivers shouldn't have to go through that. It's so expensive and there is talent that can't afford to do it that is falling through the cracks right now. Yeah, I agree totally. And what, I think when you look at these guys, just to take it back to what we've currently got, like – Zach Best is already doing Super 2. So Jaden O'Data tried really hard to do a Super 2 deal with Walton Shores but couldn't find the budget. So this is how his program ended up. Yeah. And boys had already gone around for four seasons in Super 2 with Image Racing. Like surely they've earned the right to do a couple of wild cards instead of just doing the same thing. Yeah. So, I mean, the other point here is like, I can't help but think that protecting the value of a franchise – or teams racing charter, as they now call it, is part of it too. Like even the guys doing two sprint wildcards this year, like that's that's a wind back compared to what we'd seen before. Like in twenty twenty one, Thomas Randall and Kurt Kostecki did three each, and if you go back pre COVID to twenty nineteen, like Jack Smith did four wildcards and was an Enduro Cup co-driver. So he did seven rounds without owning a license. Yeah. So I can see from that perspective that you've got to protect the license value at some point. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, this doesn't seem to be a good good outcome. Right, let's shift our focus away from our shores and onto Formula One. Uh, as we all expected, Daniel Ricciardo will leave McLaren with a year left on his contract. That is now... Official, to discuss what's happened and what might happen next, uh, I grabbed Motorsport Network's Formula One reporter, Luke Smith, for some insight. So, Luke, first question, what on earth has happened between Daniel Ricciardo and McLaren? I mean, he's a race-winning Grand Prix driver. Um, How did it not work, and not just not work, but not work to this sort of spectacular extent? Yeah, I think it has been pretty spectacular the way that it's uh, it's failed but ultimately that's the thing that this relationship has failed although it led to that win at Monza last year McLaren's first in nearly nine years and such a big moment for Daniel and it seemed like a big statement for him coming back and proving as he said I've never left but uh, that was an outlier that was a real um, anomaly within his whole results at McLaren and he's ultimately struggled to get grips with the McLaren car over the past couple of years it is a tricky car 
to drive. Lando Norris, he's even said I've had to adjust my driving style to, to get used to it. Uh, Daniel hasn't really been able to do that in the same kind of way. And uh, McLaren have tried and tried and tried, it seems, to get to the bottom of things with him. And Daniel has worked very hard on that as well. But it's, uh, yeah, it's just not worked out for them. So it's uh, ultimately led to this uh, early exit, this uh, ag- agreement between the two of them for Daniel to leave at the end of the season. But I think that McLaren, for them, there is uh, there's definite sadness about it. Although it's something that they want and they've obviously engineered, they, I think, also need to take some lessons from it and say, how on earth does, yeah, do we take an eight-time Grand Prix winner and turn him into a driver who's struggling to score points? Because some of that responsibility has to lie with the team. It can't just be all on Daniel. Um, so, yeah, I think there's a lot of um, lot of soul-searching for both parties uh, after this, and I think a lot to learn. But, yeah, I think it's uh, probably better for everyone that things have ended this way. Yeah, look, I think it's the reset that certainly Daniel needs. But, I mean, is it just the fact that the car is so difficult to drive? I mean, it's such a big gulf between those two drivers. Could it be in the future, you know, and I've flagged this before, that we kind of go, oh, okay, maybe Lando is better than we fully understand at this point? Or is it does it just come down to that car being so difficult to set up right and to drive right? Uh, well, I think it's a bit of both. I think that it is tricky to set up it is difficult to drive but the fact that Lando who is a driver who's far less experienced than Daniel obviously he's only been in F1 uh, three full seasons this is fourth the fact that he managed to get on top of it and sort that out I mean that's a big big uh, sort of um, uh, I guess sort of accolade to his credit the fact that he's managed to do that despite being so inexperienced so I think that's uh, that's a really good thing for, for Lando and yeah I think it's something that maybe we do have to give Lando a bit more credit that okay we know Daniel is very good, but is Lando just a step ahead? Is he even better? Is he a driver who one day is going to be winning races and maybe fighting for a championship? So I think, uh, yeah, it's something I think we'll probably only fully understand in, in the fullness of time in, in a few years from now as we sort of see how Lando's career progresses and maybe whatever Daniel goes on to do next. But I think that it's it's a, it's a scenario that in all of it, I think Lando is kind of the only winner. Like he's the only guy who's coming out of the past sort of like two years yeah. in McLaren with saying that his stock has risen. Because I think McLaren themselves, they failed with a driver who ultimately we know can win races and maybe fight for a championship. And Daniel has, um, yeah, failed to succeed uh, with, with a team that uh, was uh, obviously able to, to do a lot more as Lando has proven. So what is next for Daniel Ricciardo, do you think? I mean, Alpine was the early favourite um, to, to you know, to re-sign him. I guess that was based a lot on a kind of this makes sense sort of thing. But, you know, there's been some talk about Pierre Gasly being in the fold for that. Where do you think things play out for Daniel from here? Well, I think that, yeah, he needs to see what happens in the, the sort of next few weeks. But ultimately he doesn't really have any time to, to lose that's the thing like he can't wait too long to try and get things sorted and he was talking on Saturday at Spa and he said yeah we'll sort of like see the next three races like see how they go and then that'll give a bit of time to maybe uh, we've got the gap between Italy and Singapore that can maybe allow for I guess a bit, a bit of uh, bit of work to go on behind the scenes there but he doesn't really have that time to, to wait because as you said Pierre Gasly he's been linked with Alpine we've got the F1 contract recognition board they're meeting today to talk about Oscar Piastri's Alpine contract and uh, how that stands up and obviously that will have a knock-on effect but I think that 
ultimately, if Alpine do go down the Gasly route, then that is Ricardo's best option off the table. And then he has to look at, well, do I want to take a step down to a team like Haas, for example? Or do I have to say, look, maybe it's time for a year out, out of F1. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a tricky situation for him to be in. He's uh, being cornered a little bit in the driving market because most of the good seats are gone. And uh, yeah, it seems like there's um, definite uh, definite concern about what availability there will be for him next year. You talked about, you know, the fact that there needs to be some soul searching going on at McLaren as well. I mean, we've seen McLaren go from, you know, an all-conquering powerhouse team. And whenever teams are in that position, they're always sort of portrayed as the bad guys a little bit because they win a lot and it becomes boring and unpopular. We've seen them fall from grace. We've seen them build themselves back up and particularly in the last couple of years sort of become – you know, a bit of a fan favourite team, almost like everyone's second favourite team mm. sort of thing, which was, would have been unthinkable at some points in the in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s. Have they taken a bit of a PR hit again now, maybe with the treatment of Daniel? And I don't just say that as an Aussie, but and even the way they've mm. kind of been amassing these drivers and doing all this stuff with the IndyCar guys and maybe leaving a few drivers thinking they were going somewhere they're not going. Is there a bit of a PR knock-on effect for how this whole thing has been handled at the moment? There's definitely an image hit, I think, in all of this. Yeah, and it's, it's something I put to Zach Brown on Friday. And I said, look, you've had everything with Daniel and all the contracts saga going on with, with Piastri as well. And then as you touched on over in IndyCar, they've got the Alex Palau situation with Ganassi, who signed for two teams. You've got Felix Rosenquist, who was announced as a 2023 driver, but it's unclear if he actually has a contract or not. And it's it's all very strange. And I said to Zach about that, I said, sort of, are you, are you worried about that? And he said, image is everything to McLaren. It's very important. And he knows that all of these moves are not without some kind of noise and backlash. But he said, ultimately, I just want the best drivers possible for my team, which is, which is fair. I think that's certainly true. And I think that is what he and McLaren have been doing through all of this. But at the same end, yeah, you can't take those moves without maybe copping a bit of, a uh, bit of flack for being the bad guys, because I don't think it's, it's looked particularly good. And Daniel being such a popular driver, not just in Australia, but across the world, he, um, yeah, he, he's someone that, again, you kind of, question well how on earth did this work like that's not all on Daniel and people yeah. know that and for all of the sort of suggestions from the team that uh, oh yeah we're committed to Daniel we're going to see this through to the end and blah 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 and obviously that's not been the case at all so I think that yeah I think there has been a bit of a PR hit here for McLaren I think it's the kind of unpopular decision that yeah you've got to um um, they ultimately in the long run will hope pay off but for now they've got to deal with that yeah if you make tough decisions not everyone's going to be happy and sometimes your fan base might be the ones to hit back and say hang on a minute what are you doing guys yeah I mean we as journalists sort of we accept the fact that people tell us things and they're not always being totally truthful about (laughs) it we take everything these guys say with a grain of salt, but we actually saw this play out in real time. The message go from we're supporting this guy, we're going to get through it with him to him being out the door fairly swiftly. I think it showcased the way, you know, the things that the, the messages that get put out don't always match the reality of the actions going on behind the scenes. I mean, there's been, I mean, Oscar Piastri's integrity has been put under question with this whole thing with, you know, wanting to get out of the Alpine system after they invested so heavily in him. Um, what are your thoughts on that? And is this a, I mean, this is a tough assignment for Oscar, right? Going in, going to McLaren when we've seen it fail. So in such a spectacular fashion with Daniel, I mean, big ass to go up against Lando there. It really is. Yeah. And I think that's something that Oscar has now got to get ready for and get used to because 
he's he's such a good kid and all the way through his junior career he's won in every level and Alpine they said look 2022 he's going to be up doing this extensive testing program getting ready for Formula 1 and there's been a genuine excitement about what he can do when he finally steps up and yet now we're in a position where it's like actually yeah he's kind of been cast as the bad guy slightly by by a few people Toto Wolf said that yeah, was it the right thing for Oscar to do to be so sort of punchy with a statement about Alpine, a major car manufacturer owned uh, by the Renault Group, of course. Uh, Christian Hornus that spoke about sort of loyalty. We've had Omar Safna questioning Oscar's integrity. And there's so many things. And it's like this sort of perfect image, I think, of Oscar, of a guy one in F3, one in F2, really nice kid, ready for F1, all of this extensive testing. That's now had some cracks come into it, which is which is a shame because he, he deserves better than that. And I think ultimately it is down really to, I think it sounds like it's mismanagement from Alpine in terms of how they went about negotiations and was so set on keeping Alonso and maybe used Oscar as a, a bit of a pawn in that. And I think that's maybe bred some of the frustration for the Piastri camp where they've gone, well, actually, we don't want to do this anymore. We want to look elsewhere and, and go to McLaren. But as you rightly say, like going up against Lando, that's going to be a big, big ask for Oscar. If the tricky car characteristics we've seen in the past uh, couple of seasons carry over again to 2023, then again, it's going to be hard for him as a rookie to get up to up speed, we, you'd imagine. But again, he might do Orlando and like instantly impress and, and get scripts with it and understand it. But um, yeah, I think that it, it's funny because we're talking about all of this and yet after yesterday's race, Alpine was so far ahead of McLaren. It was so much quicker. And you've got to wonder in the long yeah. term, like actually, where is the better place to be? McLaren saying that 24, 25, 26, that's when we'll be competitive again. But um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe maybe Alpine turns out to be the better bet. Again, we'll only know in the next sort of two, three years or so. I would always bet on the factory team. That's what I'd be doing. But anyway, that's um, let's um, let's have a very quick chat about uh, about the Belgian Grand Prix. You're obviously on the ground uh, at Spa, a much a much drier ground uh, this year, thankfully <laughs> compared to last year. Um, that drive from from Max Verstappen, you know, in qualifying to have that margin and then to just make it look so easy from you know this from this from the back third of the grid to come through and 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 win that race like there's been so much made this year of how Ferrari and Charles Leclerc have really dropped any chance of winning the world championship with all these mistakes mistakes from driver mistakes from team I mean, it almost feels like that's overshadowing the fact that Max is doing something truly spectacular this year, like more so than last year, right? Yeah, completely. And I think that's something that we can't lose sight of, that for all of the mistakes by Ferrari and errors and even bits of bad luck that they faced, that should not take anything away from the performances that Max has been putting in because he's been... He's been on another level, like compared to what we saw last year. I think that he was very, very good, but there are maybe a few questions about his race craft and how he fought wheel to wheel with Lewis Hamilton. But this year, he's been squeaky clean. He's been absolutely fantastic. And he's, uh, yeah, I think he's just driven so, so perfectly. He's not put a foot wrong. And Red Bull is an operation as well. They they know how to win championships. And we're seeing that in absolute full swing. And I think that Spa was really just all of that coming together. The, the car was a rocket in a straight line, but then also planted through the, the twisty second sector uh, and had better tyre degradation than Ferrari did. So on all three counts, Ferrari didn't have any sort of advantage or any strength they could fight Red Bull with. So no matter what Leclerc did, even without the uh, visor tear-off going into his brake ducts or, um, or or the uh, mix-up at the end of the pit stop and everything like that, they didn't stand a chance against Red Bull. And for the rest of the season, Ferrari keeps saying, look, we don't think it's going to be as bad as this again. But 
Red Bull is clearly the quicker car right now and Max Verstappen is clearly the quicker driver. So it's a pretty ominous picture for Ferrari looking into the remainder of the championship, I think. Luke Smith, he's a proper legend, and we thank him for joining the pod. Uh, just to cover off the Belgium GP results, it was Verstappen leading a Red Bull 1-2 ahead of Sergio Perez, while Carlos Sainz finished third. Uh, Daniel Ricciardo finished 15th. There was some better news for Aussie fans in Formula 2, with Jack Doohan taking a first feature race win. Liam Lawson won the sprint race. Uh, in Formula 3, Ollie Beerman won the sprint race, and Zane Maloney the feature race. In other overseas news, Audi will enter Formula 1 as a power unit supply in 2026. The manufacturer is set to tie up with Sauber and could acquire shares in the team, which currently operates under the Alfa Romeo banner as soon as 2023. And Austin Dillon won his way into the NASCAR Cup Series playoffs with victory at Daytona. He joins Chase Elliott, Joey Logano, Ross Chastain, Kyle Larson, William Byron, Denny Hamlin, Ryan Blaney, Tyler Reddick, Kevin Harvick, Christopher Bell, Kyle Busch, Chase Briscoe, Daniel Suarez, Austin Sindrick and Alex Bowman in the playoffs. All right, it's Castrol mailbag time. Shane Smith asks how the damage bill in Super 2 is handled. Does the driver fork out more or is it included as part of their deal? Uh, well, Shane, the teams at that level need to be commercially viable. Um, they don't run and exist on sponsorship. They exist to generate income from clients, um, clients being drivers and their sponsors or family or whoever's paying for it. And, and that means the deals are generally X amount of dollars for the season plus damage. Yeah, that's that's the crux of it. And the detail of exactly how it works is often a little bit different team to team, but most will have a very basic amount included in the budget to cover your, your minor stuff, your stone chips and things like that, and then the driver sort of pays as they go from there. There are some companies out there that will insure race cars too, but from what I'm told, you know, the premiums are pretty prohibitive on that for the most part. I think the other point to make is that um, – where it gets messy is when a crash happens and there's a dispute over whether it was a mechanical failure or a driver error. Mm, Sometimes yep. the driver gets a big invoice, but they're convinced it was the team's fault and it becomes a real real dispute, which unfortunately isn't that uncommon. It's, it's definitely an ugly side of uh, what goes on there. Yep, absolutely. All right, let's hand out some Castrol Stars of the Week, Stefan. Uh, I'm going to go with Jack Miller. Uh, for my Castrol Star of the Week this week uh, for committing to his second consecutive uh, ASBK cameo that's that's locked in now. There's something old school about his willingness to cruise back down under, run in a domestic series. It would be an easy thing not to do for someone in Jack's position. Uh, I'm sure he does well out of the little deal he's got. Um, with you know his own team and uh, it's sponsored by CAD and I'm you know it's, it's the South Australian government sort of seems involved in 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 making sure he is there at the bend but it's you know it's great for the profile of Australian superbikes which has got some good things going on at the moment with the expected expansion of its relationship with supercars next season which we discussed last week Stefan who have you got as your Castrol star of the week my friend well I'm going for a pretty obvious one this week and that is Max Verstappen you and Luke covered it off pretty well earlier but I think. You know, to be on pole by six tenths, eight tenths up on his teammate, cop a grid penalty and win the race from 14th, like that's just immense. And the fact that he was favourite to win the race from 14th probably says it all. Yeah, no, he is having an immense season and that was that was one heck of a drive, so a very worthy star recipient there. Well, that's it for this week. Remember to like, subscribe and review our work wherever you listen to your podcast and we'll be back next week with more Castrol Motorsport News.
Hey, it's Chaz Mostert here, and yes, I'm inside your speaker. I'm in here because I have a special message for you from Clayton in Melbourne. If you're a club, state, or national racer on the circuit or on the dirt in Speedway or rallying, you can now tap into the know-how of Walkinshaw Racing Services, and you don't need a supercar to get in the door. The same expertise that's won multiple Bathurst 1000s and V8 Supercar Championships is now available for you to call upon. From bonnet to bumper, WRS can help you with engines, design, paint, machining, fabrication, and so much more for all sorts of makes, models, and categories. Have a chat with Walkinshaw Racing Services and tell them what matters to you. Call now on 1300 WRacing or email services at walkinshawracing.com.au.